This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn, or as she might say, a yak, with Emma Aleph. Emma runs her 1,700-acre farm, Gleason's, with her partner, Craig, near Lake Jellico, as well as running a successful agronomy business, Summit Ag Consulting. In this episode, Emma discusses how she got her start in agriculture and how important it is to be connected into supportive and constructive peer-based networks. As Emma explains to us, by sharing her goals openly amongst her peers, she was able to create an opportunity that led to buying her first farm, Gleason's, and has also led to greater opportunities within the industry. You'll also hear Emma discuss the important lessons she has learned about cropping in the low rainfall zones and how the development of the app Yaka is helping other farmers connect to industry experts and fostering greater knowledge sharing and growth across the agricultural industry as a whole. Local Land Services Cropping Officer Tim Bartomote battled his way around the floodwaters to catch up with Emma for this chat. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm in condo talking with Emma Aleph. Welcome, Emma, to Seeds for Success. G'day. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. How about you? How was the trip over here this morning? Yeah, good. Not as wet as anticipated, which is a nice change for us up here. I didn't have as much luck. Um, when I travelled over from Dubbo, I found myself getting stuck at points. I'd do a bit of rerouting, but we got here and looking forward to this conversation. Now, I thought we might start and talk about your farm, Gleason's. Can you let the audience know where you're from, what Gleason's all about, what you do? I'm from basically halfway between Lake Cajelago and Condoblin. I live on a farm there with my partner, Craig. And about three and a half years ago, we bought our own farm called Gleason's at a place called Baguni, which is a railway siding between Ungary and Lake Cajelago. So we have just over 1,700 acres that we grow dry land crops, this year wheat and canola, and also run some Dooney Merinos for first cross land production. Wow, so it sounds pretty busy. How's it looking this year? Have you found 2022? It's been a very wet start. The canola looks unreal. It went in spot on on time. It's had a heap of rain on it. Very happy with that. The wheat's a little bit variable. My partner, his family have quite a big farming operation. So we share machinery. So we kind of got to jump in the queue as to when some things get sown. And our early wheat looks really good. Our late wheat's late, but the same as everyone else's around here. It's just a symptom of the season. Yeah, it's been a very interesting one, hasn't it? But in talking about your enterprise, your different production systems, because you're quite new, I guess, in three years in, you could have done anything. What made you choose those particular things? So I grew up on a sheep station. I love sheep. So for me, it's a bit of a novelty, I guess, to be able to go to the farm and check my sheep and see what's happening with them and relive childhood days. When we started farming, two sheep were worth pretty good money. So it was a logical step and that's what the farm was set up for infrastructure-wise. In terms of our cropping, wheat is a staple production crop out here. Canola is high value and a good rotation crop. Easy to market was our other big 
point, we have limited storage on our farm. So we needed to be able to have a break crop that didn't rely on us having to be able to store it on farm for two or three years, say with a pulse to wait for the right marketing opportunity to arise. And it just the stability and ease of marketing of it. We need cash flow, particularly when we bought it in a drought and now we're trying to claw our way back out of even more debt. So not far from Lake Ajelico in more of the western parts of New South Wales, what's it like to farm out here versus, say, where I'm from, back in Dubbo, it's a bit high rainfall zone. What are some of the decisions that you have to make? So we're low rainfall zone. So everything we do is about production risks. Our biggest risk is limitations in water and what happens in September. So a good season can be ruined by one hot wind on a mid-September day. So for us, it's about how do we set our crops up to be able to maximise yield in seasons like what we're having this year without having massive upfront costs that if we do have an unfavourable spring, basically will make those crops not profitable. So it's about risk management, basically everything that we do. And then how do we assess the season in January before we even start and kind of predict, okay, what's this year going to bring? And how can we minimise risk, say like in 2019, when we'd had no summer rain, we're off the back of a crappy year, the chips were down, how do we put ourselves in a position to make a bit of money and keep things turning? So that's probably our biggest challenge. And in seasons like this, it's battling with things like fungicides and what is typically a one spray program in wheat needs to be two this year because of the season and being able to be flexible and adapt to the season just depending on what's going on. Yeah, because even on fungicides in general, that's quite having two out here. Typically, you'd expect that the spring is its own fungicide in a way that it pulls up some of those pathogens quite quickly. Can you give me an example of how you've adapted to these last few years of being so wet? Yeah, so I think I'm pretty lucky in that I'm an agronomist by trade. So for me, I've got a general understanding of everything that's going on and and some awesome connections within the ag industry to be able to lean on and talk through some of the issues and nut out what is our strategy and our plan of attack. I think that for me has been massive, but for a general grower, it's having those experts in your corner, having the agronomists that you can talk to and have networks that you can bounce ideas off and assess what are the realistic issues and how hard do we have to go. But for us as well, we do a lot of on-farm trials. So with our canola, for example, last year we sprayed some with fungicide just as a look and feel. We know the research tells us that west of the Newell we're wasting our time, but reality is in a wet season, if there's a lot of canola in, does that change things? So we're out there trying to ground truth this stuff And for me, both agronomically and as a farmer, it's fantastic because I can go onto my little farm and put some crazy things out or test some theories and be able to learn every day of the week. That's a really good point, actually, because oftentimes as an agronomist, you get to go around and kind of get to see what's going on, the lay of the land, I guess, and not just on your block, but on other people's farms as well. Is there another instance where you've been able to see what's going on in the district and how that's influenced your own decision making? Yeah, 100%. It's amazing the lessons you can learn, particularly of what not to do by watching the people around you and some of the calls they make and how that has impacts on their farming enterprise and you learn not to take that home. But in the same breath, like we've seen growers 
switch varieties of wheat, for example, to more rust susceptible varieties like scepter, but be able to double their yield. And initially when you went out, you thought, oh, that's a bit risky, this fungicide input, extra passes, et cetera. But then you watch them in the last couple of years really kick goals and it gives you confidence then to go, righto, well, maybe this risk for not all of our program, but for some of our program is definitely worthwhile and implement that. You're right. So you've been able to use your network to benefit your own farming at home. And that's really helpful as an agronomist and a farmer. But say I was just a regular grower and I didn't have access to that same network that you have. How do you think I would go about doing that same thing? On-farm trials. So work out what you think your biggest production limit is or your bugbear. And then you can talk to your advisor and work out different strategies to manage it and go and implement it. So A classic example is I think at home we underestimate the effect of low pH and soil constraints on our production system. And so I've seen in the irrigation systems we've been doing grid soil mapping to understand soil types across paddocks, which in a high-value crop like cotton makes sense. You can justify the expense. But then when we replicate that out on dry land scale, one, how do we make it that it doesn't cost a fortune because it is expensive in a low rainfall zone environment? But two, then how do we use that data that we get? Like we collect heaps of data all the time, which is all well and good, but it's got no value unless we can implement a change on it. So we trialed this year taking that grid sampling and stretching it out to a five hectare grid instead of a half hectare or one hectare grid that we would do on irrigation. And then looking at, okay, what is going on with things like our phosphorus inputs or residual phosphorus and our soil pH, and then overlaying yield maps and going, well, obviously there's some sort of soil constraint in certain areas of the paddock because we have high phosphorus telling us the crop isn't using it, which is correlating to low yield, even when top dressed the same as the rest of the paddock. And now we know that we can potentially reduce inputs in that area because we're never going to make our money back. Or we can do a deep dive and try and understand, well, what is the amelioration strategy to get that part of the paddock to perform as well as the rest? And the other big thing is we've discovered we want to put lime on some low pH areas. With this map, we now know we only have to lime a quarter to a third of the paddock, not the whole paddock, which is a massive cost saving when you extrapolate it out over 180, 200 hectares. Soil sampling is an interesting topic conversation, I think, because often how we approach the way we collect our data influences what management decisions we can make. And if it's very concentrated data that is kind of showing different areas, then we can make a lot more specific decisions after that. But oftentimes, in my experience, yeah, the cost is always that hindrance, I guess, there. So it's really interesting to hear that you're trying to expand grid sampling to try and mitigate that cost, but at the same time, get that accuracy. Yeah. And I think too, on a five hectare grid in our scale of business makes more sense because we can implement it. We don't have our spreader set up to VR spread, but we can go and zone this paddock now with a visual map that we can drive over, which will get us close to enough accuracy to still get the cost saving to justify the expense that we're putting into it. So when you say VR, you mean variable rate. So you're finding benefits of variable rate application out here near Lake Ajelago? It's something I'm really interested in exploring because I think we can actually have more cost savings and benefit in our low rainfall environment than we get, say, even in irrigation because our margins are so tight. Like think about the cost of phosphorus fertilizer this year, paying $1,600, $1,700 a tonne on farm. 
if we can reduce our overall phosphorus inputs to match our high production areas and reduce our inputs on low production areas, we may not save money as such, but we're going to put that phosphorus where it's needed and be able to maximize our return on investment. And what we might find in dry years is that we create these banks and be able to have VR maps year on year that allow us to adjust these inputs seasonally to match what's going on. And some of my growers crop 20, 30,000 acres. So you start reducing your cost or your phosphorus inputs over 10, 20, 30%. That's a massive cost saving for these guys overall in their business. And so you found that even on your farm itself, have you been able to implement that? Yeah, so we found it this year. We got our maps back too late to implement this year, but we will be looking to implement that strategy in our following wheat crop. That paddock's now in canola. And then from that data, what I've actually managed to do is get a couple of other growers interested. So we're going to actually do a big cross-section of paddocks and soil types next year across two or three of us next generation of growers coming through and look to kind of reference and cross-check and understand as a bit more of a district what's going on and whether this is something that is worthwhile pursuing and whether the cost savings are as big as what I'm imagining in my head. But you're suggesting that potentially with your growers and even yourself, they're ranging from 20,000 acres to 1,700 acres, there's a benefit for variable rate in a low rainfall environment potentially. Very exciting. So now we've kind of already discussed a bit of your agronomy work, but you're running your own small business called Summit Ag Consulting. Can you let the listeners know a bit of the story of how that came to be? Yeah, for sure. So Heath McWhirter, who was an agronomist at Elders, gave me a job at Elders. It would have been like six and a half years ago now. And we started a bit of a pilot program in Griffith doing on-farm research for companies underneath the Elders banner, as well as crop consulting. It was a pretty big gap in the market, particularly the research side of things in irrigated cotton was our niche. So we did it for a year with Elders and We missed out on some opportunities to do some really cool research due to reluctance of certain companies aligning with like a specific reseller brand, a pink shirt, a green shirt, et cetera. So in order to capitalize on those opportunities, we decided to have a crack at doing it ourselves. So about five years ago, we started Summit Ag, Heath and I, and we've been really fortunate. We've got an amazing group of growers. We've got some amazing relationships with some companies like Bayer and Syngenta and Adama to run on farm research for them. And now we've got a team of eight running around stretching from Canounder and Bathurst across to Lake Cajeligo down to Griffith, out to Hay to the bottom of Colliambly. That's pretty exciting. How daunting was it though to step into that small business realm? We kind of made the decision and had to hit go on it that quick. We probably didn't get a chance to take a breath and really reflect on the chaos that was about to ensue. We just went, yep, this is a great idea. Let's do it. And then just ran. It was pretty quick to realize the amount of work that we had put on ourselves. But our kind of theory on the whole situation was that if it didn't work, what was the worst that was going to happen? We'd shut it down and go and work for someone else again and We'd probably keep our same client base and it would be what it would be and we'd move on. We had a wonderful relationship with elders, which allowed us to step away as friends, I guess, for want of a better term. So that's been really nice to be able to maintain that relationship with them. Probably the biggest learning curve for me was don't be trying to study uni, start a business, start a new relationship and buy a farm all at the same time. That was pretty full on. 
But yeah, looking back, I wouldn't change it for the world. It was so much fun. And as you grow, there's growing pains and you've got to start doing things like managing people and managing business. And it's quite complex. So certainly make sure you have a think about it if you're going to have a go for yourself. But yeah, no, loved it. It's best decision. It's really interesting that all those things occurred at once. And I think that can be a very hot topic, particularly among young aspiring farmers or even young ag professionals who would love to get into that realm of actually producing their own cattle, sheep, whatever. What would you say to someone who, like yourself, who's been an agronomist before, going around to people's farms that would love to farm for themselves? How do you start? You need to put yourself out there. There's a lot of people who seem to think that you can't tell anyone what your hopes and dreams are and what you're trying to achieve. Like I've heard this before from people. If I tell people I want to buy a farm, everyone else is going to buy it out from under me because I can't afford it. And Craig and I actually saw the opposite. We had talked at the local pub with a few people about how one day we'd love to buy our own farm and the opportunity arose. One of our neighbours come to us and said, we're going to sell a block. We would like to sell it to you because you're young and enthusiastic and we'd love to see someone like you own it. Are you interested? And it never even went to market. It was a shake over the back fence deal to access this land purely because we were having the conversations with people that one day we would like to be here. So number one, talk about it. Talk to people about it. The ag industry is amazing in that nine times out of 10, people want to see young people thrive and achieve in agriculture. So if you can find those people to align with, they'll give you a leg up and be really clear about what you want. You know, if it is to own a farm, well, be really clear on that and think about alternative ways to be a farmer without buying dirt. Dirt is expensive. Dirt is stressful in a drought. Dirt is stressful when interest rates start to rise. But there is, in inverted commas, safer ways to be a farmer through share farming or through lease deals. Or So don't get in your head that you've got to do things a certain way to reach your dreams because we're seeing time and time again the status quo being challenged and people achieving amazing things in very untraditional routes. Now, it's really interesting how have you been able to get through that, through using networks, like we've already talked about how networks has benefited your own farming by talking to other farmers. And now we see that you got into farming through networks. Can you give an example of someone else you might know who had an unusual entrance into farming? A friend of mine, actually, Tim Eyes and his partner, Hannah, have got a very novel little business on the coast where they run farms for other people. So they're kind of in a funny little niche location where there's some people from Sydney want their little hobby farm that they can go to for long weekends or holidays. And so Tim's whole business is basically being paid to manage their farms and subsequently running chickens and cattle and cropping and doing all these things for those growers and getting paid for it. So best of both worlds. He's a farmer and he's got a guaranteed income most of the time. That is the best of both worlds. So he's kind of a farm manager in a way, but just from multiple properties. Yeah. So he's kind of got to the scale now where he actually has enough area that he manages to be able to do some larger scale production systems like beef breeding and utilizes these businesses as part of his management contract to be able to run the stock and have crop rotations and it's an awesome business and definitely worth checking out. Sounds like leasing on a grand scale. Correct. (laughs) So I know that you're quite a busy person. We've already established you're a farmer. 
you're an agronomist. You do a lot of these different talks and go to different conferences and things like that and quite influential in that regard. What are some of the other different things that you get up to in your spare time? About two and a half years ago, Heath, my business partner, and I came up with a crazy idea. We identified that there was a bit of a gap in knowledge sharing. So Heath and I, as our role as advisors, spent a lot of time playing the conduit of information between our clients around simple things like how do we set up this cedar or do you know someone that has a set of quilters I can put on my planter or just building all sorts of random connections and relationships between growers. So we had a thought, well, is there a better way that we can facilitate these relationships within our clients, but also that we can answer questions that are well outside of our client base or our skill set? So we came up with the concept of Yakka, which is an app your phone. And so basically our goal is for it to be a network of farmers, consultants and industry where you can post a question in a safe place and then have someone ring you to discuss that question any time of day or night. So it's been a bit of a love project on the side and we've loved it. We've had some really great feedback from people using it. We've had feedback from guys sitting on headers at two o'clock in the morning talking to other blokes on the other side of the country sitting on their headers at two o'clock in the morning talking about what's happening in their paddocks and growers. We had a grower on the tablelands who wanted to grow prairie grass and no one knew how to do it. He posted it on Yakka. He had two agronomists ring him. He's now successfully fattening merino lambs on his prairie grass pastures that he's put in. So there's all sorts of awesome little case studies coming out of it and it is definitely a love project of ours. So to clarify, it's peer-to-peer learning? Yeah, exactly. And it allows you to stretch outside of your region, friend base, advisor base or client base. Basically, you can list a question and what it relates to and it'll, like if it's about cotton and then in my interests will have cotton. So the question will come to me and say, Tim's just posted this question about cotton gross margins and I can be like, oh, I can answer that question and ring him to talk about it. So it seems like through an app, potentially people can, again, grow their network and have access to a lot more information or experience from people who are dealing with that day-to-day themselves and can share that with someone else. Sometimes too, when we think about conventional social media like Twitter, everyone's seen it. You would have seen it. You post something up and if it's a little bit left field, There'll be a lot of people to jump on it really quickly and shut it down or be like, this is a stupid idea or whatever. And what we're finding is that because the ability to comment and whatnot is a bit more limited and you can pick the phone up and actually ring someone and call them out when they are being a bit of a clown, that we just aren't getting those sort of conversations on it, which is awesome. So it's a pure form of social media perhaps rather than... (laughs) I think it's just a new way to use a phone call. And in agriculture, that's what we love. We love to have a yak. So that's why we have yakka. I was actually going to ask, where did the name come from? But it sounds like it's (laughs) self-explanatory. It was going to be yarn, but that was another weird app over in America. So we can that. (laughs) Americans took yarn. Yeah. So dabble a fair bit in farming, dabble a fair bit in agronomy, dabbled a fair bit in app design. Now, I know you do a bit of ag advocacy. What do you think is something that we think we need to do as an ag industry to help those who are maybe at uni, at school, to kind of invite them in, to show them how much is going on? Yeah, so a really interesting question. I think 
Something that agriculture does pretty poorly is the way that we advertise ourselves. If you watch Seven News at night, for example, they're pretty quick to jump on the drought or the fish kills or the flooding or this has gone wrong or that's gone wrong. But we don't tend to do a good job as agriculture of really celebrating the awesome things that are happening all of the cool ag tech stuff and the robots and the progression and the wins, but we're very quick to jump up and down when the wheels fall off. And I don't know, you put your hat on as someone 17, 18, 19, trying to work out what they want to do with their life. And we turn on the sevens nightly news and we're talking about the latest flood or disaster in agriculture. Well, you're going to be reluctant to join that because that's what they see. The reality is that over 80% of Australia's population lives east of the Great Dividing Range. So we're going to be highly reliant on attracting really smart people from metropolitan areas out here. So we need to get really smart about how we talk about what we do. I think young people within agriculture that are doing cool things need to step up and be willing to go and talk to school kids or uni kids or whatever to really showcase the awesome stuff that is going on. But I also think that potentially government or someone like that needs to step in and upskill people in agriculture how to talk about agriculture. So for me to be able to stand in front of a classroom of 70 year 11 and 12 students to talk through careers in agriculture didn't come naturally. I was really fortunate to be part of a program called Young Farming Champs that put me through three years of training to be able to do that. And That's what we lack, young people with the skills to get up and share their stories. So can you talk me through what that looks like? How often would you go and do that as part of your business and balancing all that? If we look back, say, five or six years, I would probably be in schools three or four days a year, going to Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or somewhere like that, advocating for what we do and and showing people about the agriculture industry. And then couple that with maybe a trip to the Easter show in Sydney or pop across to Adelaide to a university dinner or something like that. Now I am time poor is the reality and I've got to be a little bit more selective. But for example, about three weeks ago, I just popped off to Coffs Harbour for the day to talk to the industry training hub students about vet pathways into agriculture and how you don't have to go to university to work in ag and being a farmer isn't the only job and these are all of the other ways that you can be part of the ag industry. What was the reception? Did you have a chance to talk to some of those? Yeah, it was awesome. It was a pretty small little group from three schools from Coffs Harbour and Grafton and we were lucky enough at the end to do a tour of the DPI research farm so got to kind of mingle with the crew and suss it out and a lot of the feedback was kind of like oh we did not even know half these jobs associated with agriculture even existed we didn't even really know what an agronomist was or what they did or that just opened their eyes up so the question I asked them is if you could solve any problem in the world what would it be and one of the girls was like climate change but I don't want to be an environmental scientist And I said, well, why don't you work for local land services in being the person that extends research to the farmers? And just things like that, opportunities like that hadn't even crossed their mind, hadn't been thought about. Another interesting topic, I guess, in terms of labour is hard to find. You know, you talk backpackers, you talk locals, that sort of thing. It's just, it's tough. But there's a, a massive resource of people who are interested but just haven't been exposed. And so there's an opportunity, it seems, for people like yourself people like us 
and tell people about it. A National Farmers Federation have got their gap year program they've started this year and by all reports that seems to be really good and kicking a few goals and I think it's those sort of initiatives that are going to help make change but we as agriculture one need to not be siloed based on the production system that we run and work together as a united front to keep giving young people opportunities and entries in and we need to get people to understand that you don't have to be from ag to work in ag. My life is a little bit of an example. I went to university in Sydney and most of my cohort was from Sydney and a lot of them are now working in the industry out in the Central West. So it's interesting that anyone can be part of it. But what would you say to a producer who might be listening to this podcast and they're really keen to get some people on board, wherever they're from, they're more than welcome, sorry, to work here. How do they go about attracting people to their business? And this is a great question. I don't think we have got a seamless pathway to entry. I think the National Farmers Federation program that they're running to get kids out of school, to give them a gap year on farm is a great place to start. Register your interest, let them to help facilitate that seamless transition for you. But I think maybe that is something that ag as a whole, we need to keep working on doing better in creating these connections between people that are interested and people who need workers. Because how did you go about it in your own business? You said you had eight employees. How'd you go from two to today? All connections. So we're big believers in it's not what you know, it's who you know. So we are out there building networks. We employ people based on their attitude and interests, not on their skill set. We believe we can teach people and mould people into being the advisors that we need them to be rather than necessarily buying someone that's ready-made off the shelf. We're very active at the universities at UNE and CSU. We go to their career days. We actively seek out first and second year students to either come and work on some of our clients' farms so we can get a feel for them and understand their work ethic and attitude and what their goals are, which will then progress into a bug checker kind of role with us helping or supporting the agronomic team. And then if everything works out, then we offer them a job at the end. So we've got a new start joining us. She's done two seasons. And she'll be joining us full time when she finishes her honours next year. And Sam, who is one of our younger employees, started working with us through the exact same pathway. Basically an internship program. Yeah, that's kind of what we're playing at. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it raises an interesting question on how do you determine who's a good fit for your business? And it sounds like you've identified that you've got someone who loves what they do, loves their job. You're more than happy to help them do their job better. But that's potentially better than someone with a poor attitude who's highly skilled potentially. So like our top criteria is around attitude, turning up to work on time, ready to go to work, happy to put the time in. Sometimes when we've got trial work on or the wheels are falling off, you've got big days and they're hot days in the summertime, sludging around in cotton crops or spraying almond trees in a sweatsuit. Some of the jobs we do aren't that fun, but if they turn up and don't hate it and give us 110% and are consistent with their work ethic and open and honest and happy to be part of the team, we're happy to give them a go. Because it's not an easy life, I guess, being an agronomist that does summer and winter. It's not a holiday in there, is there? The crops don't take a break, so why should the agronomist? That's really exciting. That's It's great to hear how your business has progressed, even your farm business has progressed through networks 
and how potentially our industry can progress further and kind of make that connection between those 80% who are sitting over the mountains there through more networks. I guess that's a good little theme we've got running here. (laughs) Well, Emma, it's been great to have a conversation with you about everything ag today. Thanks for coming on the show and look forward to hearing about more exciting things that you're doing in the future. Watch this space for the next lot of chaos. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.